You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. Hello, founders and friends. Today, I'm joined by a scale-up founder who operates in a space that you might not think of as a growth market. That space is caravans. Now, the CEO, Raul Fraser, and his company, Love It Parks, have gone from one to 160 employees in just four years, and the growth is set to accelerate. We join the episode just as Raul is telling us how he started Love It. Hope you enjoy. How does someone who was a successful investment banker end up in the holiday parks business? It's a completely random story. One of my best friends in the world comes from a traveler background. He's an actor, lives in New York. And in April, 2017, he came to stay with me and said, look, my dad's on well, do you know anyone who'd buy any of our parks? And at this point, I known that his parents owned caravan parks. I just never pressed it. So I said, tell me a little bit about this business. And at that time I was running a family office and I was kind of looking for something to do. And I really enjoyed the whole entrepreneurial side of setting up a business, running a team, working banks, lawyers. So he explained it to me and I thought, wow, that's super interesting. His parents live in a caravan outside Ascot. And so I called up another friend who he grew up with. He's a really successful property guy. He lives in London. And I said, Mark, can I buy you lunch? Is this, is this real? And he confirmed it. And then I went to America on a road trip with my wife and three kids. And I started looking at the situation in America where one in 22 Americans live in trailer parks. Now the perception is trailer trash, but the reality is actually very different. You have super high end trailer parks on the East and West coast and Montauk, Malibu. And when you look at the sunshine states, they're amazing retirement communities. I literally got back to England in May, 2017, Googled caravan parks. Went to see a lovely agent down in Devon for the day. And I spent eight months researching it. If you'd asked me six years ago, whether I'd be doing this, I would have laughed my head off, but it's just an amazing industry. And in the UK, I had failed to anticipate just how big it is. It's 1.2 million caravans in this country. So pre-COVID, a quarter of the population had spent a night in a caravan. Well, it's one of those opportunities that seems hidden in plain sight. But what are some of the preconceived ideas people have about caravans? What makes this an attractive business? When I was doing my background research, there are two incredible US listed REITs. One is called Equity Lifestyle Properties, which was set up by Sam Zell. If you don't know of him, it's one of the richest men in the world. Super successful. I think he's founded $5 billion businesses. By the way, he's never sold any shares in equity. And then the second biggest is actually now the biggest of some communities. And what got me interested was if you look at their performance versus the US market, they outperform them by about seven times. And the reason why they have is because these businesses are very resilient. They do as well in recessionary environments as they do in inflationary environments. And you have a stable cash flow from the rents that customers pay. What's that expression? Safe as houses. That's right. Safe as caravans, I guess. Safe as caravans. And it's a really interesting story because they originated after the Second World War, where the US government really worried about how they were going to house all these GIs coming back from the war. And so there are 50,000 trailer parks in the US and Equity and Sun have about 450 each. It's a very fragmented market and it, that's really similar in the UK. 
there are about 5,000 holiday parks and about 2,500 residential. What really interested me was this idea of housing. Caravans are another form of prefabricated housing. When you think about two massive trends in the UK, one is aging demographics. Two is the fact that very few people can afford to get on the housing ladder. I've always thought this was a great way to try and help answer that. So when you're starting a business, you need a vision to energize people to join, to invest. So what is your vision for the industry and for your company? On the holiday side, you know, we ultimately take the responsibility that we have delivering a great experience because people get 25 days holiday yet. We want to make it really good. And there are many metrics you can use to measure how good that is. We're very focused on the customer reviews. And then on the residential side, we really believe that this type of accommodation could be a growing part of the answer to the housing crisis. And the reason why I say that is if you take all accommodation types in the UK, the humble bungalow is by far the most popular form of accommodation. And yet very few of them are built. And the reason why that's the case is because of the density, the big six like to build up. Whereas I read a stat recently that if you look at the over fifties, 80% of them would choose single story bungalow as their number one form of accommodation. And when you say the big six, these are the big six construction companies. House builders. I mean, there were only 1500 bungalows built last year. You've got the housing crisis, but at the same time, you have changing consumer patterns. So how do you make a caravan business attractive to new consumers? The first point is you want to be in a strong location. You know, our sites typically in tourist hotspots like Cornwall, the New Forest, Norfolk, Suffolk, Kent. The second is the accommodation type is really important. What's interesting about our industry is most people, when they think of a caravan, Particularly if they haven't stayed in one recently, they think of those caravans from the 1960s, which, you know, would fall over in the wind. Yeah. I used to go caravanning with my mum when I was seven in Kiln Park in South Wales. And I think I have fond memories. I don't know if I have fond memories. <laughs> I mean, my mum loved it. I like the arcade, but that's the vision I have. This is a very cramped kind of environment with 60s wallpaper. <laughs> exactly. You know what? Now I got into trouble with my wife because I had an interview with the Times and uh, I said, now the caravans are better than our house in London. And I really mean that. Their floor to ceiling length windows, all the mod cons, fully furnished. And what's been really interesting for us is in the last 18 months, because we invest a lot in our parks, to try and make them good. We've seen a new type of customer, i.e. customers who ever stepped foot on holiday parks before. You know, our big kind of angle to this is when people are thinking about buying holiday homes, of course they can buy traditional bricks and mortar homes, but there are a few downsides to that. And some of those downsides are the fact that they then have to worry about the maintenance, council tax. When they're not there, who's going to look after it? Then there's this point about the fact that second homers, you know, are pricing out local communities. For us, it's the fact that all of our holiday homes are in a certain area, i.e. our parks, means that local home prices aren't impacted. We've seen a lot of people, entrepreneurs, successful retired people, who traditionally would have considered bricks and mortar homes, now buy lodges on our parks. So you got into the business. When did you start Love It Parks? I spent eight months searching it, starting kind of May. And then I went to some friends of mine who are really successful entrepreneurs. And I said, look, I have this crazy idea to enter this market. Will you back me? And they kindly did. So we bought our first park in January 2018 in Norfolk. 
So what are some of the challenges of building a business in real bricks and mortar, physical sites, physical locations? And then as you grow, what are the challenges that you've been facing? It's an operational business. So we have 160 people now on our site in the New Forest. We employ about 70 people. And particularly because of COVID, recruitment is hard. There is real pressure on the hospitality sector because obviously, you know, as I keep on reminding my teams, things will never be as good as this year because people can't generally go abroad. And we've worked hard to try and manage that and are continuing to work hard. So the first one is operationally, it requires a lot of management. The second is in our industry, because we're buying the caravans from UK manufacturers, there's real pressure on them because of the demand, but also being able to get supplies. So in the UK at the moment, you've seen this in the press in the last couple of months, it's really hard to buy glass. It's really hard to buy wood. It's really hard to buy plastics. We are suffering as a result. I'd say as well, from an employment point of view, when I set up the business, there was literally just me. And so quite rightly, when I was trying to recruit people, no one had a clue who I was. And whilst that's got easier and we developed a brand and a reputation, it's still hard. Any entrepreneur will say the hardest thing about their business is finding good people. You've got the challenge of the preconceived ideas in this space, right? Holiday homes or caravans. They're not perhaps at first glance, top of mind when people are looking at industries to join. What is the pitch that you have for someone looking to join a high growth startup that is in one of these underserved sectors? It's a fascinating industry. I mean, it really is. So as someone who I bought that part from, he said, well, you're like a mayor of a small town, constantly making decisions and solving arguments or debates about who's right, who's wrong. I'm not going to lie. The industry as a whole still has a lot of work to do in terms of getting people who would never have traditionally thought of going on a holiday mark to consider it. Because as I said at the beginning, I'm the caravan industry's biggest fan. What I really love about the industry is the sense of community on the parks. It's how I imagine cities and towns used to be in the sense that everyone kind of knows each other. And I have tons of friends who have now come on holiday on our parks who are like, wow, instead of renting a cottage or an Airbnb, I'm definitely going to consider this, particularly for families with young kids. You mentioned that you are now around 160 people and you started three years ago. How have you seen a culture emerge and a sort of a way of working emerge? And in what sense can you see your own personality being reflected back at you for good and for bad in the company today? Myself as the founder, and this is what I think is really hard on founders, is that you are always on show. Like, Everyone is always looking to you to make sure that you do the right thing. And as everyone knows, in business, there are so many difficult decisions that you have to make. When I was at Goldman Sachs before, they had an expression, we're long-term greedy. I don't really like that expression, but I know what they mean. And that kind of thinking long-term is super important. We got asked in a board meeting recently, how do we measure success? And I think Jack Mara of Alibaba came up with something which I think we have definitely adopted, which is we measure success in terms of customers, team, profits, in that order. And I think that's really right. If we get the customer experience right, everything else will flow. And as my team well know, the thing that makes my day or ruins my day is if we have bad or good reviews. I guess you wouldn't be too surprised how often a bad customer review on Trustpilot or even an ex-teammate leaving a bad review on Glassdoor will come into a coaching session because it has such a big impact on the founder. 
So I'm curious, what are some things you've learned by looking at the bad reviews that you've taken with you and used to change something? It's a great question. You know, we had a funny incident the other day where the police called us and said, there's someone on your parks who should be self-isolating because he's come into contact with people who are positive and it's not. So we are going to turn up later on today. So the police arrived, they gave this guy 500 quid fine. He said, look, I don't believe in it. And the police said, right, you stay in your caravan and tomorrow morning you will leave at eight o'clock. The guy leaves. The next day he gives us a one star on TripAdvisor and makes like a very critical comment. Send up to TripAdvisor and we say, hey, this is very unfair. They had nothing to do with us. Anyhow, they're not going to change it. So my first thing is, in some cases, there's nothing you can do. Second piece is the fact that no matter what you do, you're always going to have some people who are going to be unhappy. Now, one of the expressions I hate in this business is you're never going to please everyone because I always think of that as an excuse to not have very high standards. But I know, of course, there's an element of truth to that. The third is we actually occasionally get people who say, we've just been on a holiday with you. We're going to write a negative review unless you give us the holiday for free. And our policy has always been, we don't do that. It's rare. I'm not seeing this huge percentage of people doing it, but there are some, unfortunately. You know, I think we have to be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we've screwed up. We have a situation at one of our parks where one of the pumps has gone down, so the water pressure and one of the immunity blocks is not great. Absolutely maddening, both for the customers and for us, particularly because the person who kindly deals with it is often COVID. So we've had to wait a little bit. But no one cares if you're on holiday, and I get it. I totally understand. So, you know, for us, reviews are a really good thing. You know, at the end of every season, we go through every review. What have we learned? And I think that continuous feedback loop is so important for businesses. And I guess the same goes for the team too. There's no hiding. And the reason why I spend three days a week on our parks is because I really enjoy talking to the customers. And also I find out the truth. What's going wrong? Is there anything that I should be aware of? It's really helpful. I guess that's one of the advantages of having a business with physical customers, right? It's hard, I think, when you're operating a SaaS business to have that direct interaction with the customer. But for you, I guess you're learning by walking around. You have to. You really have to. Every holiday homeowner, we have about 700, has my personal mobile number. Now, you know, my teams are terrific. They, of course, will deal with any issues. But I always say to customers, if they don't feel their issue is being dealt with, just call me. I always want to maintain that personal feel. Well, Raoul, I'm getting nervous for you. Do you get a lot of calls from angry customers in the middle of the night? Not in the middle of the night. It's at a level which is manageable for now. And as I just said, I really enjoy speaking to customers. What are some of the practices that worked when you were smaller, but now you've just surpassed Dunbar's number, which means you can't have a personal relationship with every person in the company? What are the sort of practices that used to work and have just stopped working and you've had to try something else? We're at a very dangerous point in the company. And by that, I always say to people, getting from zero to 10 parts or 15 is much more straightforward than getting from 15 to 100. Us as a business has had to really try and professionalize the business much more, really think about the systems. And we're at that danger point in the sense that we are having to overhaul people and introduce things that we don't need to, but we won't be able to scale unless we do. We're going to treble in size in the next five years. And there's still a lot more we can do after that. 
from my perspective, it's that at startup phase, everyone's getting involved in everything, typically me. And now I can no longer do that. And it's trying to get that balance right of giving your teams as much autonomy as possible without giving them too much so that everyone is going off on tangents. It's really hard to get that right. You know, this winter, we have a ton of projects. Trying to balance the priorities of those projects is a challenge for us. So what we've done is promote some really good people within the business. We've hired someone as well to help that. We're really determined to get it right. At some point, you reach a stage where you can no longer jump in. What are some of the mistakes that you've made where you've jumped in where you shouldn't? We need at least a day to answer that question. <laughs> you know, all the time. It's having an opinion, responding to an email when you don't need to, making something much more inefficient or complicated than it needs to be. And ultimately that comes down to, if you hire really good people, you don't need to do that. I don't think I have one specific example because it's happened so many times. I think the difficulty is that in practice, it's a really tough call, right? Do you jump in? Do you let it happen? Do you organize a meeting? So what are some of the examples we could go through in the last week? There was a music festival for 15, 16 year olds called Boardmasters. Unfortunately, it's led to a huge increase in COVID cases. You know, a really big issue. And that's why last night they were saying, don't come to Cornwall unless you've booked a holiday already. So the whole county is really struggling with that. So we're trying to manage people either getting COVID or being pinked. So as a result, when we think about the frequency of washing our immunity blocks, it's super important. All of our parks are immaculate and we work really hard at that. So I'd said to the regional manager, oh, how about we close our little cafe? But I didn't need to say that because of course she'd already thought of that. They were already doing that and I shouldn't have stepped in. I didn't need to because ultimately I trust, you know, the person in charge of it. And what happened when you did step in? She gave me a very good, but firm response back. <laughs> and I'm really very conscious. And my wife always reminds me, if you're the founder of a business, how easy is it for people to actually say what they think about your judgment or your performance? You know, one of our shareholders, an amazing woman who founded a multi-billion dollar property company in Asia. And when she set up her company 25 years ago, her policy was in every meeting, the youngest person would speak first, which is so thoughtful and really good. You know, no one's a monopoly on good ideas. And whenever anyone says to me, you've grown the business so much, I say, it's not me, it's we have grown the business. What are some of the steps you've taken to counteract the fact that people don't give you honest feedback in the way you'd like them to? What's been helpful for me is having an advisor to the business who's been with us from the very beginning, who is not full-time. He's been in the industry so long and I really find it valuable that he says it as it is. We had a presentation yesterday on our IT systems. Again, like every startup, is it perfect? No. And this IT consultant did a great presentation, showed us what we need to do at six times the price that we're paying now. And of course he's right. Whether we need to do everything now is another question. So this advice called me this morning to find out my thoughts. And I said, I gave my view and he said, actually, Rao, you're wrong. And then proceeded to go through all the reasons why I was wrong. And of course he's right. I think Dave as well, we have terrific people in the business. We really do. I'm super proud of everything that everyone's doing. 
the quality of people as well coming into the business. If you have to say to me, other than getting certified, what's the thing I'm most proud of? It's when I'm in a meeting, listening to people who are so much better than I am, not only at their job, but just in general. And I think, wow, we've had some really great people. And hopefully over time, we will continue to do that. One thing I'd love to unpack with you is your philosophy to networking. So having got to know you, I'm just very impressed with your ability to cultivate your network and reach out to people spontaneously. So how do you think about networking and what are some of your practices around that? I have to say, I hate the expression. Mm. I'd never actively thought of, or it being a pillar of a strategy. My father was a really lovely academic. He was not cut out for the commercial world. However, what I learned from him is every day he would read at least three newspapers, every news program he would watch religiously. And then he would go to bed listening to his radio by his ear all night. So I had it from a very early age, a natural interest in current affairs. And so as a result, and I really try to encourage this with my children, is if you're constantly reading things, and it doesn't even have to be books. I know everyone, all entrepreneurs say, you need to read as many books as possible and learn. I actually think it's as important to read as many different newspapers, publications. I've got a huge email from Twitter. I'm actually not on any social media. I, I am because I have to because of work. But before that, I wasn't. But Twitter, on the other hand, I've just learned a huge amount, particularly from US tech companies. And, you know, I would highly recommend that everyone signs up to all the good VCs, all their blogs, all their articles that they write, because they've been so helpful to me when thinking about the business. Often in our talks, you're speaking with such fascinating people, whether they're writing blogs. So is that the connection then? You read and then you reach out when you find something interesting. Yeah. And yeah, of course, sometimes people don't respond. I think you have to have a natural curiosity about people, other businesses. I mean, there are so many other businesses that I find fascinating. What are some of your approaches to reaching out? I think you reached out to me. I did, because I came across you on Twitter, started reading your blogs, thought, super interesting. And then I sent you an email just saying, I really need some help, actually, because I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. In fact, when I was growing up, actually, any friends of my parents who were entrepreneurs, most of them had failed. And I was really cautious about it. What I wanted to do was I have a really stable job. I really don't have all the answers. I mean, I'm trying, I'm really trying, and I am super paranoid about the business, always thinking downsides. And whenever anyone says, wow, you built in such a short time a great business, it makes me nervous because I know how easy it is for these things to go wrong. Because that complacency, you can see it. Those businesses where things go really well and then you think you can do everything. You know, I'm very wary of that. I'm from the north of Scotland, so I'm very careful with the money I spent. <laughs> yeah. And I will say to the team, think of it as your money. Once people feel that, it changes their behavior. So as you take Lovett into the next stage of growth, you're on that trajectory from 160 to 1,000 people, at least, right? That's just the next step in the journey. What are some of the gaps in your leadership game that you're aware of that you want to look at? First, delegation. I'm naturally interested in pretty much everything about the business, other than maybe IT. You know, of course I want to be involved. And being the founder is a lonely job. People don't talk about it enough because unless you have a really good support network or 
a really strong relationship, obviously with senior members of your team. You know, I didn't have any experience in this industry, so I'm literally learning everything and I still have a long way to go there. But I sat next to someone in finance for 10 years. I knew him better than his wife knew him. And now I'm trying to build a working relationship with hundreds of people. And that just takes time. So firstly, it's the delegation piece. Second, it's mentally being a very honest self terms when you screwed up, that ability to say, I'm sorry, you have to manage your pride in terms of when things go wrong and saying, ultimately, I always say, if anything goes wrong, it's my issue. I've allowed it to happen. You're taking on a lot of responsibility there. Of course. You look at successful football managers, so I spoke to he would always say it's his issue. To take away from the team, hopefully they learn, and they did learn, but that's part of being a leader, no? I think the nuance comes in to figure out what you should take responsibility for and what responsibility you should give to your team. And when you give that responsibility, at that point, that's their responsibility and their problem. You still have your set of responsibilities, setting strategy, building the team, resourcing it effectively. But I think that's the nuance is figuring out what is your responsibility and what responsibilities you can delegate and should delegate. Responsibility is probably the wrong word because, yeah, as we discussed before, my responsibility is three things. People, financing, strategy. I think that was really helpful and the many good things I learned from you in terms of those three buckets. I guess when things go wrong, it's analyzing why we allow that situation to happen. Mm. Yeah, so this is less responsibility, more accountability. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think accountability is the number one challenge in leadership, period. I think it pervades every conversation, every coaching session, every vulnerable conversation. It's like, oh, it's really hard to hold people accountable. Why is that? What is it that's hard about accountability? Part of that has to be people don't like to say sorry. Mm. People don't like to say sorry. It's much easier for me to say, oh, I screwed up. But, you know, typically when we hire people, they've come from you know, much larger organizations where if that happens, you know, potentially their job's at risk. And in finance, I always used to say to my analysts, it's not a question of whether you'll make a mistake or not. You're going to make a mistake. And typically that's going to be a financial mistake, which will not be great. The only thing I care about is that you say sorry and you learn from it. There's still a long way to go. Maybe not to take it to the level of, say, Bridgewater, Hopefully most people have heard of one of the biggest headphones in the world where it's ruthless and it's very open in terms of that feedback. Bridgewater is an extension of that Black Mirror episode where everyone's rating each other, isn't it not? Yeah, it suits some people, other people, it's not right. So you don't do the rating thing then? We don't. No, but that's really interesting. I've never heard it framed in that way of people don't like to say sorry. I guess it does speak to vulnerability as well. It's, it's easy to say, look, we don't have the answers and we're going to make mistakes. But there's something deep that is uncomfortable about admitting that, particularly, you know, going back to a previous conversation about, you know, when you're the founder, there's a sort of cocoon of honesty around you where people don't feel they can be as honest. Let's talk a little bit about balance in terms of balancing the CEO role with practically anything else that's going on in your life. You have a family and friends and other interests. You're a very curious person. What are you learning about balance in your role as CEO? The thing I struggle with most is getting that balance right. 
And I always smile when I read interviews with super successful founders who go, my family is my number one priority. I spend as much time with them as I can and work will always come second. I bet they didn't say that when they were early days of their business. I have an incredible wife who's very long suffering, but I'm not proud of the fact that I've always put the business first and I can't help that, but that's just the reality. And I don't like the fact that I've had three days holiday this year. It's not fair on my children or my family, but they know why I do it. And hopefully over time that will get better and I'll manage it much better. But I really respect anyone who gets that balance right. You said your family know why you do it. Why do you do it? You know, I do it because I love it. And there's an incredible opportunity for us. And a lot of entrepreneurs, you have to have this sense of urgency. If you don't have a sense of urgency, someone else will be doing it. And I have to say, actually, in every job I've ever had, and I've only had three, it's always been that way. As I said earlier, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. How many other people get an opportunity to build something that they love doing when there's great opportunities? So few. You know, I don't take the responsibility of 160 people's livelihoods lightly. And this is why we're at a very dangerous phase. Because if you try and take on too much or get cocky, you know, it could end madly. If anything, at this stage now, you have to be even more careful in terms of your future path. And I guess that narrative is playing in the business and probably elsewhere in your life as well. It's a difficult time for you with difficult decisions to make. It's so easy. That's why 70% of businesses fail when they're fast in. Entrepreneurship, there's so much glamour attached to it. I think Americans definitely speak a lot more about the challenges that being an entrepreneur and founder bring. I think probably the UK is a little behind, but yeah, I think it's changing. This whole idea of mental health, super hard. Mentally, you have to be super strong. So I think it's much better now that people are openly talking about it. The way I think about vulnerability is, is actually being open about your weaknesses, open about the struggles, open about the fact that we don't have all the answers that we need support. Just actually, just being open to taking on support is quite a big deal because I think perhaps a more traditional way of thinking about strength is it's, I don't need support and you know, I can do it by myself. I'm a strong person, but actually a more modern way of thinking about it is actually strength is understanding and acknowledging weaknesses and reaching out for support and yeah, not pushing as hard as you think you should, but as maybe as hard as you can. When I read about successful people and even outside of business, I think their starting point is they understand their weakness. They understand how much better they can be. And therefore, as a result, they're always looking to get better. And what's interesting about that is it can make you very depressed. Like I only see a lot of the time the bad aspects or things where we can improve and trying to get that balance right. I find it extremely hard to enjoy the moment and I don't ever switch off ever. That's not healthy. I don't think that's a sustainable thing. Like even on holiday, the three days I took, it's trying to not be involved. It's still working. It's super hard. My former therapist would say one of the defining features of anxiety is it's either about the past or about the future. It's specifically not about the present. So the level of uncertainty as a founder in the future is immensely high. The level of uncertainty about whether you've taken the right decisions is immensely high. It's a very anxiety-inducing role. 
And symptoms of anxiety, constant rumination. So hands up if you're a founder and you're constantly ruminating or thinking about it. It's really hard to stay off. And that's why I think the practice of mindfulness, presence, I'm talking about this as if I'm the guru on this. I'm completely not. That's why I'm bringing it up and why I have a therapist. But the, the challenge of trying to stay present, I think it's something a lot of founders will relate to. It's really hard. This year, my aim is to start meditating. My sister has been done it for a long, long time. Huge fan. And I, I think that grounding will be very helpful to me. By the way, I've been saying that for three years. So. I've been talking about yoga for 10. I'll share with you a little hack that I found pretty helpful, which is rather than sit down, focus on a dot, don't talk, don't move. Another approach, which is often a little bit more accessible, is to go for a walk around the park with no phone, leave your phone at home and just try and concentrate on the trees and the sounds of the birds. And whenever you see, you know, your mind wanders off to think about that HR issue or the big contract that you're dealing with, just try and get back to the birds and the trees and the sky and the smells and the sounds of the other people walking around the park. And that's been actually quite helpful for me is a more accessible gateway that doesn't feel as challenging. You know, what's funny, I tried all the different types of yoga. And when I lived in Beijing in 2004, I did Bikram and loved it because it's very active. Either I'll do meditation or I'll get back into that. One way or another, I'm going to try and sort it out. Well, I'm glad you took three days off. The other tip I would give is when taking a vacation, aim for two weeks. The first week, you're still checking emails, you're still in too many conversations. But the second week is where the team start to just get on with it. And then you get a chance to really purge your system of that anxiety. But I think the hardest thing for me is accepting that being on holiday is not necessarily a weakness or the team won't see it as me copping out. I shouldn't think like that. And actually I had burnt out, so I needed those three days off. What has worked for me is typically have a break in December where we're much quieter. I don't generally get as much email traffic. Can I just check in? When you say three days off, are you talking about Friday, Saturday, Sunday? No, that was midweek. <laughs> okay. I had five days in total. By the way, I have to say the weekends are typically our busiest time because our customers go to our sites at the weekend. So I get as many emails at the weekend as I do during the week. Interesting. I'll share something else as well. When you live in London, most of the holiday destinations require you to travel east. And when you travel east, the time goes ahead, goes forward. But if you were to travel west, say you're going to spend a month in New York, what you'd find is your team clock off, let's say six, seven, eight, which is the early afternoon in New York. And once the team clock off, you know, you have a two or three hours of deep work and then you can switch off at five, six o'clock comfortably. And the opposite happens when you travel east. So just at the time you're going for like a restaurant, people are like signing off, they want to unblock themselves. So it's just an interesting thing. It's a shame there aren't more islands in the Atlantic to go on vacation <laughs> that are reasonably priced. You know, Dev, look, so one of the most relaxing holidays I ever had was when I was in finance and I went to Jackson Hole for precisely that reason. But it was because I was year seven into my career. I knew everything that was going on. And like I knew the team. I went there two New Year's ago and it just meant I was up at four in the morning working. It didn't work. It didn't work. I like the idea. Yeah, I like the idea. Raul, thanks for just being so open and, and sharing some of these things. I think you are right that in the UK, it's not a conversation that's as widely known. But trust me, the people who are listening are probably saying, Raul, take a two-week vacation. Don't worry. The team are not going to get complacent and be like, oh, if he could do it. 
First, I'll take a month off. No, I say take it. So if people are looking for great breaks in the UK, how can they get involved with Love It? Look, we do camping, glamping, anyone owns a motorhome, anyone wants to stay in a caravan or a lodge, come and check us out. Do you do special discounts for founders that need a two-week vacation? Of course. Maybe you should. Anyone email me, roundupparts.com. I'd be more than happy. Come and stay. I'm super proud of all of our sites. You'll have a great time. And you know, what's so interesting to me, particularly for London-based founders, how little they would go and explore the rest of the UK. And by the way, I put myself in this category. Until I had this job, I'd never owned a car. So I never used to travel. But actually, there are just so many beautiful places. Cornwall now, the crystal blue turquoise water you get. You could be in the Caribbean. It's much better than the south of France. Much better. No, there is something to be said for that. I think like many of us, right, over the last two years, I've seen more of the UK than I had in the previous 30. And there was one trip that I took. It was to this place near Solihull. And they give you Wellington boots and a picnic basket. And they're like, here's a map of the fields that you can go walk in. So we spent the whole day just walking in fields. You know, it wasn't the warmest day because it was in the UK, but it was absolutely amazing. And just right on the doorstep at the end of the day. So... If you are interested in taking a time out, visiting the UK and seeing what all the hype is about, go and visit loveitparks.com. That's L-O-V-A-T parks.com. What's next for you and love it? The aim is to buy 20 parks in the next five years. So that would make us one of the largest operators in the UK. I have huge respect for a lot of our competitors. They've built great businesses and, and we've learned a lot from them and are continuing to learn. Hopefully they're learning a little bit from us as well. We're spending a lot of time thinking about the caravan the design, the type, prefabricated housing. Can it be part of the answer to the housing crisis? Working with one of the best architects in the world on that. We're really excited about the possibilities that could stem from that because it's this idea of what is community? What is a modern village, modern town? What does that look like? What does electric cars mean? Do people necessarily have to be in cities? Retirement living. There are lots of really interesting things happening. You know, we want to be part of that. Nice. Well, if you want to build the future and you're looking for a company that's growing as fast as any pure tech company, go and check out loveitparks.com. Thanks to all the listeners for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, go ahead and click subscribe or follow on Spotify, wherever you're listening. And join us next time where we'll be going deep with another high growth founder who's willing to be open about the brutal truth of running a business. Okay, I'll catch you soon.